between a rock and a hard place. I'm Hannah. And I'm Colleen. And we're going to tell you about our life in Iraq. It's going to be fun. I hope so. Well, Colleen, as the great Tammy Wynette once sang, it's hard to be a woman. And I think that's true in Kurdistan. Uh, I think that's true in much of the world. But I definitely saw a stark difference between everyday life for women in Kurdistan and everyday life for women in the U.S. Yes. That was probably one of the biggest daily, like, regular differences. Yeah. And we have done a podcast about what it was like to be a single female Mm -hmm. in Iraq, but I think it's worth talking about kind of the bigger, the bigger picture of what it's, what life is like for all women. Yeah. And the different gender roles that are assigned and expected out of both men and women. Yeah. Because it, it really colors a lot more of day-to-day life than I think even I was aware of living in the middle of it. Oh, yeah. It wasn't until I came back to the U.S. and I remember especially one particular experience where I had a man who was older than me and married with a family. So, like, high high ranking. Tell me that he valued and wanted my opinion on something Mm. and that I should speak up more in meetings. And I was so surprised and so shocked. And then I questioned myself, like, why are you so surprised and so shocked? Like, that should be normal. Like, that wasn't weird in your culture. And then it it realized how much of the Kurdish or Middle Eastern culture had kind of seeped into my expectations. Yeah, and I think there's kind of two ways that people react, women react to that when they're they're in that culture, is either you submit to it entirely and they're just like, this is the way that this is, why fight it? Or you, you fight back against it in whatever ways are open to you. Uh, some mm-hmm. women more openly and obviously than others. Um, but I definitely had, I had kind of that variety of reactions from my, my female students. Yeah. Um, I know I had one in particular who was like, I'm going to organize a march for women's rights and don't you want to be involved in that? And we should get everyone involved in that. Can you help me with this? And I was just like, I, nope. <laughs> I mean, if not you want to do this, for. if you want to do it, do it. I will support you. You know, I will give you advice, but I'm not going to, like, get your, all your female classmates riled up about this issue. That's not why I came to Iraq, mm-hmm. to, like, revolutionize women's rights. And it's interesting, as we were reading about what women's rights are in Iraq, I feel like we got a lot of hearsay right. of women's rights. Things like, yeah, it takes two women to equal one man's weight of witness in court and, you know, things like that that are just assumed or, you know, told. It is interesting, though, that the Iraqi constitution is really vague in its language. It just kind of says, yeah, we're gonna pay pay attention to the rights of women. Not like we're gonna make sure that women have rights. We're just gonna pay attention to them. Um, <laughs> and if you... What does that even mean? If you've been listening long enough, you've figured out that Middle Eastern cultural is very patriarchal. And part of that is Bedouin, kind of that Bedouin background culture or nomad culture of the man 
takes care of the outside things and the woman takes care of the inside things. Part of it is influenced by Islamic culture as well. So it's kind of a combination of those two things. And it's interesting to see, especially the Kurds, I feel like, want to be very forward-thinking. Mm-hmm. I will say they are trying very hard to be forward-thinking. They, I used to have students that made fun of the Saudis. Oh, yeah? Because the women, they're like, the women have to walk around covered, and they can't go to school, and they can't even drive. Like, what country doesn't let women drive? And that was never an issue in Kurdistan. That, right. Like, of course women are going to learn how to drive. And it may vary from family to family, but legally women are on fairly equal footing, although their legality is held somewhat more loosely than men, I guess I would say. Yeah, I mean, the women in Kurdistan do work outside the home. Mm -hmm. They do have roles in government. They do have a lot of things that on the surface look like equality and the gender roles are whatever people want them to be. I mean, I knew female doctors and lawyers and business women. Yeah, and all of those people are respected for doing that, not looked at like, oh, a woman shouldn't be a doctor. Right. I mean, that's not something that I ever heard anything about. And I didn't have students, you know, my female students, just as much as the male students, wanted to be engineers and doctors. Right. So there wasn't, they didn't feel that kind of cap on their their potential, I guess. Right. But at the same time, once you're actually in those professions or in those roles, there's still the expectation that you will also take care of the home, that you will be responsible for food and cleanliness and child care and... Elder care. Elder care, yeah. And that uh, you will, within that environment, still be ranked lower than men. Especially if you don't get married. Yeah. Or if you don't have kids. I, I don't think I knew any women highly educated who weren't also married. And, I mean, probably they, they chose that to some extent. And mm-hmm. There's not a lot of forced marriage. But there is that societal pressure of, like, the normal thing is that you get married and you have kids and you take care of your family. And if you can also be a doctor at the same time, great. But you should get married. Which is something that the... That uh, some cultures here in the U.S. still deal with. I mean, yeah, I know we've talked about that. Even within Christian culture, there is still that expectation that you know women get married and take care of kids, and so we're not we're not blind to our own our own cultural background in this either. But this the subtlety there was not as subtle as it sometimes is <laughs> here. Subtle, yeah, it was not. Not at all subtle. Women are definitely expected to be weak and silly and uh, to overreact Hmm. to situations. There were some more tense situations that I encountered over my years there, and they did not expect me to be the person who was, like, calm and collected and could handle it. They expected me to be the person who was gonna, like, freak out and faint and be like, hysterical. Be hysterical. And I remember kind of surprising some of them at some of those points and being like, are you okay? Yes, I'm fine. But there's blood. Yes, there is. The kid will be fine. Mm-hmm. It will be fine. I am not going to go Flint into it. a panic. 
for you. And yet that was what was expected of me, but not of my male teammates. I feel like I didn't encounter it quite so obviously. I think perhaps also because I have a stronger... I seem like I'm in control all the time. <laughs> I come across that way very strongly. So it was it was interesting, though, to see in my relationships, especially I had a male supervising teacher, principal, and to see him kind of hang back and watch and see how I reacted to situations and how he treated me differently than the other female teachers because I reacted to situations differently than they did. Mm-hmm. And just kind of, yeah, that expectation of I had to I had to earn my way into getting his respect where my male co-teachers did not. Right. And my experience was a little different, too, because I didn't really have male teammates my Mm -hmm. first year in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't have any male teammates my first year in Iraq. And my second year, I had one, a married couple, and the husband uh, of that married couple, who worked part-time. He was not a teacher, though. He did not enjoy teaching. So I I won that contest because I like to teach. But I felt like I didn't see as much of the favor simply because there wasn't a male there to compare myself to, right. I guess. Yeah, because to some extent, we all were coming in as outsiders, so right. there was expect expectation that we would be treated maybe differently from the other teachers regardless. Right. But yeah, the contrast between how if in a teacher's meeting, if one of me or my female teammates gave a suggestion, how it was received in that environment versus one of the male teachers or one of my male teammates gave a suggestion and how that was received was probably one of the things that was the most frustrating. And at certain points, sometimes my male teammates would would recognize that. Mm-hmm. And so then they would like pipe up and repeat and sometimes even say, well, Colleen suggested this and I think it's a good idea. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, the, you know, Kurdish principal is saying, well, his idea was so great. And in ways that I don't think he even really realized. Sure. But was just like, if it's a good idea, it must have come from a man. Yeah, and that that can be very frustrating. Uh, it can be very demoralizing in some ways. I think in, in my case, it made me quieter. Mm-hmm. That it was like, oh, if no one's going to listen to my ideas anyway, I'm just not going to say anything. Yeah. And so I kind of adopted the, like, I'm going to sit back. And if you ask for my opinion, I will tell you, but I'm not going to speak up in this meeting. Right. Well, and I think that's part of where my American boss's comment came out of the blue for me, saying, no, I want you to speak up. Why are you not talking? Why are you not sharing your ideas? And I'd gotten into the habit of, unless it was something that I felt was really important, I wasn't going to share it. And even if I did think it was really important, I was not going to share it in a group meeting. I was going to go to the supervisor and talk to him personally with a whole bunch of evidence and having done a lot of research and then let him run with it and take it as his idea. Because I felt like that was the way a change that I thought was important was actually going to happen. Yeah, we've talked a bit before to you about how men, males, always in the... I almost said in the U.S. In the U.S. In Kurdistan are kind of allowed to do whatever they want to do. Oh, yeah. I feel like I saw that all the time. And I think it's something that some of my male students struggled with 
with me as a teacher is I wouldn't let them dominate the classroom or I wouldn't let them get away with whatever they they thought they could get away with. But I also had to be careful not to come down too hard on them mm. because there was kind of that reactionary, like, I now have power over you mm -hmm. and people of your gender are obviously repressing people of my gender and now that I have power over you I want to make you pay for it again not something I think that was conscious but I did notice that I would get much more frustrated with my male students than I did with my female students in part because their behavior was a lot worse because they're more frustrating but also I, I do think I had internalized some of that conflict and was like trying to get back at them on some level or get some justice for my female students. Yeah. The boys, I, I can't call them men because in my mind they're all still like sixth grade boys. Right. Uh, they're all grown men now, <laughs> like beards and families and it's weird. And I know, I know. I met one just last week. Yeah. Who came to visit us and it's like, you're tall and you have a beard and what is this? Who are you? I definitely heard and, and tried really hard when I did hear these things to put the kibosh on it, but heard them say things about women or about their female classmates that came from that idea that women are, are weak or mm -hmm. foolish or they were really good about recognizing when one of the, one of the girls in class with them was smart. Right. They knew that, but they also felt like since she was smart... She was obligated to help them because they could do more than she ever could. Right. That now her smartness was something that they could exploit. Right. And I, I saw it happen over and over and over again. And I tried to put forth the effort to talk to those boys and be like, she is not responsible for you. You are responsible for you. And I think, I think that's a, a big thing is men are not responsible for taking care of themselves in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, so, like, a wife will come under criticism if her husband is too skinny. Right. She must not be feeding him well. I mean, but it's not her fault if he's not eating what she makes. Or if his... Her food just must not be good enough. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> or if he's tired or not getting enough rest, you know, it's the wife's fault. She's yeah. probably harassing them. Or if they can't have kids, obviously, it's her, it's fault. her fault. And I think, I think that's a really, a really hard cloud to live under. Hi, I'm Kim. I'm the office manager here at Servant Group International. I'm the one who's responsible for processing donations, for keeping the ministry going, and for the staff. And we would love for you to keep me busy. I do also want to recognize, though, that men have their own struggles within that society. Absolutely. Um, and their roles also have challenges and pressures that come with them. There's, especially if you are the oldest son, there is a lot of responsibility on your shoulders to not only provide for your nuclear family, you know, your wife and kids, but you also are caring for your aging parents, and perhaps even their parents. Perhaps even their parents. And any of your younger siblings who are not married and established themselves. Mm -hmm. Like, 
you you take on all of these responsibilities and expectations that we don't see that in American culture. Mm-mm. I mean, we're very independent minded and we are responsible only for ourselves. Right. And there, that communal side of things definitely means that everyone, especially, yeah, the oldest male, Mm -hmm. is responsible for caring for and taking care of his family. Which means that if you have a younger sibling who's a real just a mess, who can't get anything right ever, it's shameful to you as the oldest. Like, you Mm -hmm. should be the one controlling their behavior. You should be the one making sure that they have a job or that they get a good education or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's an unfair responsibility in a lot of ways from, Especially from a Western perspective. in cases where there's been a lot of war and a right. lot of men have died. And mm-hmm. so sometimes that responsibility gets put on kids. Yeah. Even if some of it may be pushed off a little bit, like needing to financially provide. I I had, yeah, like 6th and 7th graders sometimes whose fathers were dead that had this pressure on them to succeed, to do well in school so that for, for the, the mere, the only purpose of providing for their families and taking care of their families and mm-hmm. this goal focus, even at a young age. Right, which means that for a lot of them, they put off or have to put off thinking about getting married or thinking about having their own families. There's also this idea that the the man has to provide for his wife. And so a lot of men who want to get married, I heard this a lot, they want to get married, they've met the girl that they, they want to marry, but her father has said, well, you have to have a house and you have to have a car and you have to have a high-paying job. And it is really hard to provide those things in a country that is not super stable economically Mm -hmm. uh, and where you have to pay for everything in cash. Like, there are no loans. You have to earn that money to buy that house yeah, and furnish that house and buy the car. And And the job market's not great. It's rough. So if you don't have the tribal connections or the, you know, political affiliations to be kind of gifted those things, right? it can be really challenging. And that's why a lot of men end up leaving Kurdistan and getting jobs elsewhere. Yeah. I knew a lot of men who maybe could not provide the house and the car for a wife in Kurdistan, but could move to the U.S. and get a green card. And that American near citizenship was equal to a house and a car in the father's eyes <laughs> but like you can provide a place of safety basically for my daughter so i felt like i know a lot of people who their fiance was living in america they were coming back they were going to get married the fiance was going to go back to the u.s and in a year she would come to america to live with him and so it wasn't like it was very non-traditional in that she kept living with her family mm-hmm. until he could come and get her. I was, I always felt, sorry is not the right word, but it always felt so painful to me to be like, this is, this is hard. Like, this is hard for the woman. This is hard for the man. This is hard, like, because she's going to leave and never see her family again. He's never going to see his family again. 
but they want to be together. There was like that, like deep, beautiful love story in there too. And uh, I'm a sucker for a good romance, but it's, it's a rough place to live in a lot of ways. And I think those really strict gender roles are, are part of it. And it's hard for men also who try to or want to buck those social trends at all. I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but I had a neighbor, and I think you did too at one point, where the man would sometimes do the cooking, and like we would watch the husband, he would stand there and he would you know, be chopping vegetables. And it wasn't because his wife or daughter were incapable of those things, because they did cooking too. But sometimes he did the cooking, and he would get razzed by the other neighbors for doing any cooking. Yeah. And he just happened to like it. Right. That that was something that, you know, oh, that's women's work. Like, that he could be judged for that was right. frustrating and right. also wrong. Uh, it also means that the men in the role of father have kind of a tricky, a tricky balance. I definitely, I definitely think this is trending differently now, but a lot of men aren't expected to raise their kids, essentially. Oh, right. That's women's work. Right. The mother does it, or the husband's mother does it. You know, the grandmother raises the kids. It means that a lot of a lot of father-child relationships are very strained, mm-hmm. to say the least. Mm-hmm. And not to say that all of them are, because I did know several that were very good. Oh, had sure, very good relationships. But but those were the exception. Yeah, they were noticeable. Yeah, because it, it's like, oh, you like your dad. Like, you have a good relationship with him. He encourages you to do the things that you're dreaming of. That was one thing that was really neat for me to see when I was on a team in hook with families, with men who had young children, little children, and for them to recognize, hey, as a father, part of the way I can help change people's hearts is to be a good dad to my kids. Yeah. To go out in the yard and play with them And, you know, they had the, like, baby carriers, and the guys would carry around their babies. And Kurdish men would be like, I can't, like, make fun of you because you're an American and kind of the coolest person I know, but also, why are you carrying around a baby? I mean, but at the same time, Kurdish men love babies. Yes. It's so weird. (laughs) Like, and they will coo over and googly eyes over babies. Mm-hmm. But probably, you're right, never be seen carrying around their own. Right. Or really, even... I don't. I can't recall if I ever saw a Kurdish man hold a baby. Oh, I did. But briefly. Like, cradle in the arms or, like, hold up under the armpits and look at it? Cradle. Okay. See, I only saw the hold up under the arms and be like, you're a baby! Or pinch the cheeks. Yeah. The Kurdish men love babies, but yeah, the the... The parenting of them, especially past that point, is really up to the women's. The women's. The women's work. Right. So you get teenage girls who are growing up with dads who kind of societally are forced to be distant from them. And then, you know, teenage girls be teenage girls. And the dads come down hard on the teenage girls because the girls are bringing shame. This is the other thing that I never quite figured out. How it is that girls who have such little value in a lot of ways are such huge bringers of shame to their fathers like there's part of me that gets it like I understand the value that they have I guess it would be more shameful if you had a son and a daughter and the son was failing school and the daughter wasn't 
the son's failure would be more shameful than the daughter's failure. Yeah. But I feel like the daughter would be given a harder time than the son. Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to do some research on that topic when we come back to the question of honor. Shame and honor. Ooh, yeah, there's a teaser for you. Shame and honor. It's coming, eventually. I mean, we already kind of did shame. We did. We gotta do We gotta talk about honor. We gotta, we gotta do some more, more personal research on that one, because you're right, it still befuddles us. It's, we don't quite understand how that works. It's complicated and deep-rooted. Yeah, I think uh, a good thing to do is to look at how how gender kind of plays a role in in your circles. Mm-hmm. And again, look at it from both sides. It's every, Everybody has some things that are different because of their gender. Right. It and just is. every culture has aspects of it that are shaped by that and how we interact with each other or what kind of value we place on each other. Yeah. So... Look for those things, send us an email or Facebook message and tell us, hey, this is what I've noticed. This is what I see as different. Especially if you have Middle Eastern friends, look at the way their life runs and the way that your life runs and see if you can see how gender plays a role in some of those things. And even ask them. It might be a fun conversation. Yeah, it'd be a really fun conversation. And then tell us about it because we want to know love to hear from you. You can find us at Servant Group International on Facebook or Instagram, and you should check out our blog and complete transcripts over at servantgroup.org. And it's really helpful for us if you share our podcast or leave a review on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. It helps us know that people are listening, and you can let us know what you want to hear next. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening!